Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Thursday. This is Seattle Now. Throughout the early to mid 20th century, Washington State was home to 15 Native American boarding schools. The schools have been a source of cultural erasure and generational trauma for Native people for more than a century. But the specifics of what went on in those schools has been largely ignored or forgotten by many, including government officials. KUOW investigative team members Ashley Haruko and Isolde Raftery have been collecting information and stories about what went on at these schools. They've spoken with survivors and their families. We'll hear from them in a minute. But first, let's get you caught up. The Washington State Department of Health is trying to make sexual and reproductive health care more accessible statewide by creating a helpful web portal. Cairo reports the intention is to increase affordability and accessibility of services like STI screenings, birth control refills, and pregnancy counseling for people in rural or under-resourced counties. The State Department of Health site lists 37 clinics in our Washington State Sexual Reproductive Health Network that have a telehealth option, which can really help with access to care. Telehealth appointments may also be covered by Medicaid, Medicare, or existing insurance. There are a lot of people in our state who don't have ready access to enough food. In 2020, the state began to track the effects of COVID on food security. The latest survey from December 2022 to January 2023 intentionally oversampled households with lower incomes and those on food assistance. According to the results, more than half of the respondents reported using food assistance in the last month, and nearly half were food insecure in the last month. That insecurity was higher in renters, low-income households, households with children, and BIPOC households. Respondents also reported feeling more worry and financial stress around increasing food prices. And quick fact before we start the show, this podcast is free. Well, sort of. We can only make Seattle Now because of listeners who step up and donate to support the show. This week is our spring membership drive, which means you can get a t-shirt or a tote bag as a thank you gift if you make a financial contribution by midnight, March 15th. Chip in five bucks a month if you can. That's only 25 cents an episode. Not exactly free, but you know, pretty good deal. So if you value listening to the show, think about it. Chip in. Make a donation. There's a link in the show notes. And thanks. Before we get started, we are talking about some difficult subject matter today, including conversations about abuse and death. If you're not up for it, we totally understand, and we will talk to you tomorrow. KUOW's investigative team has spent the last six months researching the treatment of Native American students in Washington's compulsory Native boarding schools. The I-team's Ashley Haruko and Isolde Raftery decided to start their series of stories with the story of 12-year-old Charlie Feister, a student at Chamawa Boarding School in Northern Oregon in 1907. It's a place where corporal punishment is routinely used against these children, a place where their native customs, languages, and practices are forbidden. Charlie and his two friends, Ignatius Seymour and Willie Wiley, are on the run after escaping Chamawa. This is Charlie's fourth attempt at escape. Charlie and two of his buddies were camped out at this barn, and they stole chickens and eggs and potatoes, and they made meals out of that. And on this one night, 
Willie Wiley goes to the other pals and says, hey, I have an idea. Let's go to the general store up the river. They decide that they're going to take food from a nearby store owned by Robert Henderson. So in the middle of the night, they venture away from their camp to the store. And when they reach the shop, they struggle with the front door and can't seem to break inside. That's when the store owner, Henderson, who is sleeping on the second story of this building, wakes up and starts shouting, who's there? The boys don't hear anything because at that moment, a train starts rumbling by. And so it's this sort of horrible scenario where you have this guy warning them to leave, but they can't hear the warning. And they don't really start running until around the time he opens the window. And at that point, he's taken aim and he shoots into the darkness and he shoots Charlie. Henderson, the store owner, goes downstairs to get more ammo for his gun and he hears the sounds of someone convulsing. He calls for help and eventually he finds Charlie's small body slumped near a ditch. He's been shot in the head and doctors try to save him and perform emergency surgery to ease the pressure on his brain, but hours later, Charlie dies. Charlie was one of hundreds of attempted escapes from Chamawa in the early 20th century, emblematic of the suffering the state and federal governments brought upon Native Americans. Canada's government investigated its Native boarding schools and is now giving billions of dollars to tribes for what a national board called a cultural genocide. Early findings from a federal investigation here in the U.S. were presented by Secretary of Interior Deb Holland last year. But to really understand the scale of what happened here in Washington, KUOW's investigative team is working to find individual stories like Charlie's from survivors, their families, and tribes across the state. Ashley and Isolde are here. Thank you so much, you two, for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. You talked about Charlie, and Charlie's story is just one of the stories you've collected about abuse of Native American students in the Pacific Northwest's boarding schools. Why is it so important to tell these individual stories? Well, I think it's important to say that Charlie's story and his life still matters today, especially to the Klamath tribes of which he belongs, who are still mourning his, his death and sharing his story. Um, you know, what happened to Charlie also fits into the broader context of the federal government's policy of trying to eradicate Native people, cultures, and languages across the United States. But, you know, I also want to share something that a friend of mine said. His name's Dennis Graham, and he's a member of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma. And he read the article, and he said that for so long, the government spent years dehumanizing Native people and that sharing stories like Charlie's really helps to reverse that and rehumanize Native Americans. One of the things, too, is that when we started this, we really thought about this as like a broad approach. We were going to tell the big story and we plan to still. But what we realized is you can't tell the big story until you've told a lot of individual. But I also think you know, studies have shown that when you tell one person's story, people check in and people pay attention and people hear the story and they connect with that person. You want readers to connect with that and you don't want people to feel they're just reading a history textbook. You want them to feel like this is immediate. And not only is it immediate, he is one of at least thousands upon thousands, maybe more. 
And there are a lot of these stories that we need to unearth and tell. Let's talk a little bit about the work you two had to do to uncover these abuses, as well as finding and listening to survivors. What did your process look like for this reporting? Well, it involves a lot of digging through records at the National Archives in Seattle. So sitting in the small room at a table, going folder by folder, um, just reading and capturing, you know, with our our phones, capturing photos and revisiting those records later. Um, And also a lot of transparency with sources about the kind of work that we're doing. We have a no surprises policy when, you know, when it comes to covering issues related to trauma. But I also want to acknowledge the fact that our ability to share these stories is reliant on the people who went through these experiences or had loved ones who attended the boarding schools and their willingness to speak with us. Um, So the credit goes to the members of these tribes who are willing to share something so personal with reporters like us. Ashley and I have made trauma and abuse sort of a cornerstone of our reporting across the board, different kinds of trauma. And what we learned early on is that people are really nervous and they don't tell us they're nervous, but they're very nervous about being interviewed. They're very nervous about all the next steps in a story that like, well, where is it? Where is it? When's it going to run? Are you, are you going to let me know what's the process? They want to know everything. So we tell them upfront, our policy is no surprises. You will know what is in this story in some form. And depending on who it is, like some people, we decide we need to read the story to them. Some people rarely will sit down with them and let them read the whole story. Here, we decided we wanted to have Native readers. So we have asked a handful of people if they would be willing to read our stories, and we would pay them to be a sensitivity read. And that's not going to apply to every story, because on certain stories, it's going to be about the people or the people themselves, and we're going to have them read the stories. Or in the case of Charlie, the Klamath tribe's chairman read the story, Um, Abby Hall, a tribal archivist, read the story. And that in journalism is so unorthodox. Like that is just a big no-no. When I was a young journalist, I was told I would be fired if I let a source read my story. I mean, you, you can't even fathom of it. And so we have completely changed the rules. And the reason we're doing this is because Ashley and I are both non-native, but also even if we had a native reporter, I would want the same policy because these are deeply, deeply sensitive stories. They're about trauma. And this is a community that the media has not treated with any sort of respect. Mm. Why tell these stories now? What spurred the investigative team's deep look at Native American boarding schools in the Pacific Northwest right now? About a decade ago, I was reading depositions in a lawsuit against the Catholic Church involving former students at St. Mary's in OMAC. That was a boarding school in OMAC, Washington, in Eastern Washington. And in the depositions, several mothers mentioned children not coming home and children dying. And I knew that the same thing had happened in Ireland. And so I, and I'm Irish, and my aunt was an investigative journalist who worked on this. And I knew it's not a coincidence. It must be these children were disappeared. And so I started asking around and I went to OMAC Washington and I started interviewing any chance I got. Um, If I was interviewing someone who was native for a different story, I'd be like, by the way, boarding schools. And the, what I kept hearing was, yeah, you know, 
I know my grandma went, but I don't know anything about it. And that's what we've been hearing now in this reporting as we've charged ahead with it. We've been hearing from people saying, I know my parents went to boarding school. I know my grandparents went. I know little stories, but I don't know the whole story. And so what happened, I think, for these stories to start coming out um, was that you have what happened in Canada. And a lot of people I've spoken to, I mean, I just spoke with a man yesterday up in Shoreline, and he said he his dad went to Chamawa and he wants to know what happened. He doesn't know what happened. His dad never discussed it. The Canadian boarding schools and also Deb Holland talking about this. He said that felt like his marching orders to learn and give back and and help with this mission to kind of unearth the truth. Isolde Chamawa, where Charlie escaped from, is located in northern Oregon. But the school's first students were actually of the Puyallup and Nisqually tribes. Has your team done research into the schools in Washington? Yeah, our focus is Washington State. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the reasons um, Charlie's story came together more quickly than the other stories is that we we're actually being a little unorthodox as journalists in that we want full um, tribal buy-in. We have other stories that are kind of waiting in the wings right now where we want we want to hear from the tribes just to make sure that they are okay with this. You know, we are telling their stories and we are non-native and that's a funky place to be in. Like Asolda said, getting tribal buy-in, you know, is really important to us because it feels unethical to proceed on a project like this without having that. What does that look like, Ashley? That looks like being very transparent with, you know, the people in our stories about what exactly we're doing, what we're looking into, um, the framing that we're using, um, because media has not been kind to those communities in the past. So that's what we're trying to do. You know, there's so much power in these stories and uncovering this abuse is huge. But ultimately, what could be the result here? I think it's hard to say what change could be on the horizon, especially in direct response to the ongoing federal investigation into these schools nationwide. I can say is that many people with families connected to these schools have said at the very least they want acknowledgement and a public apology. They also really want the stories told. I'd say that is the universal, what everybody has told us, and frankly, what may have actually changed a little bit the course of how we're reporting this out is people have said to us, we want the stories told. What can we expect to see from this investigation as it continues? We're really at the beginning of this process. So Charlie was the first story and um, coming up are many, many more interviews and stories that we plan to tell. And this is where I want to just mention Pam James' story, and that's coming out in an essay soon. But Pam James um, is a self-described boarding school kid, and she went to St. Mary's in OMAC. She also spent a little bit of time at Chamawa, and she has a wonderful story where um, her grandmother, who'd gone to St. Ignatius Mission School in Montana, had um, came to visit her at St. Mary's and waited for the nuns to have turned their backs and then got her and her sisters into a car and they sped off. And Pam's grandma had, um, she always kept a rifle right next to her rocking chair. 
and she hid the kids um, in the mountains. So when people came to see grandma looking for the kids, um, you know, she was with them, but also at one point, apparently, like she had the rifle and she was like, you are not getting my grandkids. And she managed to keep the authorities at bay. And by authorities, we're talking military and police. We're not talking like just your neighbor or a farmer Joe. We're talking about real law enforcement with guns and weapons who came and she managed to protect her granddaughters. Such an important story. Ashley Haruko is an investigative reporter at KUOW, and Isolda Raftery is KUOW's investigations editor. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Today's episode was produced by Vaughn Jones. The show is also produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Claire McGrain, Brandy Fullwood, Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers, and Jenny Cecil Moore. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you tomorrow.